Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and for this very special episode of I'm the Gun, I've wormed my way into the infamous Bloodlines Best Event Ever Network, teaming up with a few fellow comics fans to acknowledge DC Comics' landmark crossover event Bloodlines. Now, notice how I kept a straight face when I said landmark? So Bloodlines is the crossover so nice I just had to record twice, as along with this episode, in which I'll be recapping one chapter of Bloodlines uh, from Justice League International, Annual Number 4, I've recorded another episode covering the kickoff to the event from Lobo, Annual Number 1. In that episode, I provide a little background on Bloodlines, uh, which I will omit here. So if you dig DC crossover events or blog slash podcast crossover events, I invite you to check that out. But just very briefly, Bloodlines is basically a bunch of superheroes fighting a bunch of alien dinosaur bugs. The aliens prey on humans, sucking their spinal fluid, and the few of them that don't die from these attacks gain superpowers and absolutely horrendous character names. Bloodlines is not regarded as one of DC's premier events. In fact, it's probably regarded as among the worst. So when I found myself in this fan jam, I was really interested in going back and reading a few chapters of the story and see if time had been kind to Bloodlines, or find out if it was completely deserving of its reputation. Or, I hoped, this is what I hoped, was it hit or miss? Was it a totally mixed bag, depending on the creative teams behind each issue? So after rereading, after probably about 15 years, the two chapters I was going to work on, I'm kind of leaning towards that last scenario. The issues I read were, were decent comics, reasonably well-written and certainly well-drawn. Not perfect standalone issues, but at the very least, very, very least, entertaining reads. I'm curious to see how my partners in crime made out. If you are as well, be sure to check out Professor Alan Middleton of the Relatively Geeky Network. You can find Professor Alan at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Check out the latest post on the Coffee and Comics blog at coffeecomicsreading.blogspot.com. Also the delicious Between the Pages blog at betweenthepages.typepad.com. And the Resurrections, well, it's usually an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. You can find that at resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com for some more Bloodlines coverage. All right, so I want to dive right into Justice League International Annual Number 4. For those who may not be aware or forgotten, at this point in time, Justice League International was the title formerly known as Justice League Europe. In fact, it had just switched titles right before this annual came out. And this was released during Outbreak, the first of four Bloodlines phases. The others were appallingly named Earth Plague, Deathstorm, and Bloodbath. There's a good creative team on this book. None of them strangers to the Justice League. It was written by Gerard Jones, who wrote the monthly series, and had been on the book for a while, at least a year, writing it by himself, and a year beyond that, scripting over plots by J.M. DeMatteis. The art team is great. It's penciled by Mike Parabek, who'd co-penciled a couple of recent issues of JLI with Ron Randall, and had done a fantastic job on 
Justice League member Elongated Man's miniseries about a year previous to this. That also happened to be written by Gerard Jones. Elongated Man Mini is a favorite of mine, and I touched on it briefly in a recent episode of this podcast. I was surprised to see the name of the inker, Luke McDonnell, who I've always thought more of as a penciler. I've seen him ink his own pencils, and I actually think that's the best his art looks when it's pure Luke McDonnell. But I don't think I've ever seen him ink over anyone else. I like the way their styles blend. McDonald's inks are really heavy-handed, thick outlines, and a lot of black. I think this really enhances Parabek's animated-style drawing. The bold outlines sometimes in this book have a certain Alex tothiness, which I really like. I absolutely adore the way Parabek draws the elongated man, and he's a big part of this issue. But I was surprised at uh, how much I like the duo's take on Tasmanian Devil, he simultaneously seems cute and cuddly, but as vicious as he needs to be to fight giant alien parasites. Let's see where I leave off. Uh, Clem Robbins is the letterer. Jean D'Angelo was the colorist. And it was edited by Ruben Diaz and Brian Augustine. Cover was done by Justice League Task Force team of Sal Voluto and Jeff Albrecht. Uh, I don't appreciate this duo's work as much as uh, I do Parabek and McDonald, and I honestly wish that the those that done the interior got to do the cover as well, but whatever. I think Voluto did the cover to the Flash annual, too. The Flash Bloodlines annual, which may have, that title may have been under the same editorship, so perhaps Professor Allen has some info on that, as I think he has the pleasure of covering the Flash annual for this event. Anyway, the cover promises the introduction of England's newest champion, Lionheart. So each issue of the Bloodlines crossover introduced a supposed new superstar into the DC universe, a new blood. These are all the aforementioned survivors of the aliens' attacks. In this story, called Bloody London, we meet the next new blood right away. Richard Plant, a Londonite sipping a pint at the local pub. He seems a little rough around the edges. By the way he speaks, maybe not the best education, but where Shoney's got a clear sense of decency, ready to punch out a barmaid for making lewd comments about a, a lady present. Plant is approached by a couple of badge-wearing trench coats, saying he's needed in service to his majesty's government. At first stubborn and hesitant, Richard is persuaded to go along with the gents when they tell him that uh, this mystery gig will pay better than his dock work. And where they take him is a hidden corridor under a nearby statue of King Richard the Lionhearted, who, to me, this statue actually looks a lot like Graham Chapman as King Arthur. The two trench coats kind of trick a justifiably still suspicious Richard into a dark underground room and when the lights come on, Richard finds he's surrounded by huge robots with comically large mallets. Mallets you'd find uh, came right out of Tom and Jerry. These mallets are the robots' hands, and it looks like they're ready to play a game of whack-a-mole. Through some little windows, we see this beatdown is being observed by several people. In another part of the city, we find everyone's favorite stretchable sleuth, investigating a string of brutal murders accompanied by 
JLI teammates Tasmanian Devil and Metamorpho. We first see the heroes on this on a two-page gag, which I really liked, where Ralph is searching for clues with a magnifying glass, though when he finds something of interest, which happen to be claw marks on some brickwork, his eyeball stretches right through the frame of the magnifying glass. There's no glass there. The thing is just for show. And that's typical Ralph. He's so into the investigation that when Taz shows up, Ralph is so startled that his neck stretches up about five feet. And when the two of them, Taz and Ralph, compare notes, they're doing it so intensely that when Metamorpho wafts up through a street grate as some kind of gas, it scares the hell out of the other two. It's a nice introduction for the core team of this adventure. Rex is there to report that there have been uh, some sightings of three flying humanoids leading the Justice Leaguers to think that though they've been searching for one killer, there may actually be three. Back with Richard Plant, he's actually holding his own with the giant mallet-handed robots. He uh, kind of resourcefully blinds one of, one of them with his coat and tricks it into hitting another one. But when he gets socked, he notices that uh, he notices the hilt of a sword, which he manages to draw, not out of a stone, but out of a giant lion emblem. It's not a typical steel sword, it's an energy blade, which he uses to cut down the robots, and then takes it one step further, surprising his observers by cutting into their control room. Before he can cause any more damage, Richard is interrupted by Lord Elgin Whitestone, who takes Richard, sword in hand, to a study for a drink. Offered brandy, Richard refuses and requests courage ale, but what he really gets is a little family background. Whitestone breaks the news to Richard that his family name had sometime in the past been shortened from Plantagenet, and that he's a direct descendant of Richard I. In fact, the sword he's holding is quote, an electrochemical reconstruction of Richard's own sword. I have no idea what that means. Whitestone goes on to say that he's working on a little project. He's recruiting, training, and equipping a group of special operatives to serve as England's protectors. Whitestone wants a courageous, well-bred person, such as Richard, to be the first recruit. His little arranged battle with the robots was a test of sorts, and he passed. So confident is Whitestone and Richard's accepting of all this that he's already lined up his first assignment. Back at the Justice League's castle headquarters, Ralph and Sue, his wife, hear over the radio report of yet another murder, this time in Chinatown. Ralph rallies the troops, troops being Metamorpho and Tasmanian Devil, and they head out. At the crime scene is another victim with the same neck puncture wound as the ones that have been popping up all over London. Hiding around a corner is Richard Plant, decked out in some new threads, apparently, and listening to the police procedure and the talk of three inhuman monsters who are believed to be the attackers. Now, when stretchable Ralph, a misty, foggy Rex, and the shaggy Aussie Devil arrive on the scene, Plant mistakes them for the monsters. He jumps the gun and reveals himself as Lionheart, champion of England. 
Now Lionheart is not the best character design, I'll say. Uh, but it's decent for the time and by no means the worst looking new blood. He's got dark gray armor, very streamlined except for the thick necked headpiece which is reminiscent of old armor I guess. I really have no idea how he turns his head. But uh, sword brandished, he tears right into the leaguers which is bad for them but it actually gives us a good idea just what Lionheart is capable of. You can easily toss the super strong Tasmanian Devil aside, so he's got that going for him. He's got a mace, a techno mace, I guess, which can shoot beams, one of which stuns Ralph. Uh, he can produce an energy shield out of his forearm pieces. And we see his energy sword again. It slices right through Rex. When Taz fights back, Lionheart uses a rocket blast from his boots that sends him reeling. And when Metamorpho turns to gas, Lionheart has a little face shield that slides into place, protecting him from that sort of attack. The three heroes finally manage to restrain Lionheart and explain that they aren't the killers. They're cooperating with police and investigating the killings. We get some eyewitness reports of a large man with a beard, um, perhaps a Jamaican man with dreadlocks, and another with hair that goes straight up near the scene of the crime. And with that info in hand, and after another little hostile exchange with the Justice Leaguers, Lionheart blasts off with his boot rockets. Observing this little scene are the bearded man, the dreadlocked man, and the man with the hair that goes straight up. These are the shape-changing alien parasites that have been causing trouble all across the DC Universe, killing lots of victims and leaving shitty superheroes in their wake. The aliens are, in a way, physical representations of the seven deadly sins. And here, in this issue, we have Glomph, who's Gluttony, Praetor, Pride, and Gimir, Avarice. But like I said, their greatest sin is the majority of New Bloods that they produce. Anyway, Lionheart reports back to Whitestone, who's already heard through the media about the interaction that he had with the Justice League, Urs. Whitestone reveals a little bit more about his true intention. He's got a real distaste for the Justice League, who he refers to as foreign paranormals. And how this, his Lionheart project was kind of a nationalistic stab at creating some competition for the Justice League, capable of running them right out of the UK. Whitestone takes kind of a threatening tone with Lionheart, referring to himself as someone who's been an integral part of the royal government for a long, long time. He cares nothing for modern technology, despite his involvement with the project, and his sole purpose he sees as returning his sort of people in England to their rightful place. He orders Lionheart to find the killers quickly, not only to solve the situation, but also to beat the Justice League to it and discredit the team. And these comments by Whitestone seem like a very deliberate attempt by writer Gerard Jones to sow seeds for a future story, but I don't think 
it ever came to fruition. It was too bad, as it sounds like it could have been for some decent stories. When he says long, long time, it makes me think hundreds, hundreds of years. Who is this guy? Uh, I don't, I don't think we ever see him again. So back at Castle Justice League International, the report of another alien attack at an open-air market has Ralph, Rex, and Taz kind of down. Their teammates, Dr. Light and Power Girl, drift through, too busy to help. Uh, just as Lionheart shows up, he was led in by the Justice League's newest member, the teenager Maya, who now <laughs> seems like the Golden Age Kamala Khan. Lionheart reports that his uh, contacts in the government have established a pattern to the killings. They're moving east, and if the pattern holds, the next slaughter will be right in the Justice League's neighborhood. So the four men depart to scope out the surroundings, leaving Maya on monitor duty, which was the exact wrong move as the aliens in their natural alien forms now show up at the castle. Hero's investigation turns up nada, zip, zero. But when they try to get a better look from the top of St. Paul's Cathedral, they see one of Maya's mystical arrows. That's, that's what she does. One of these arrows shoots up in the sky from the castle, acting like a signal flare. They're not sure what to make of it. They return to the castle to see Maya just about to be made a meal of. But they interrupt just in time and start going at it with the three aliens. It goes back and forth for a couple pages, but Praetor, the acting leader of the group, at least in this chapter, manages to get the better of Lionheart and maneuvers him into that customary bloodline's position and attaches his tube tongue to the back of Lionheart's neck and begins to suck. This causes Lionheart great pain as the full page devoted to the shot attests. Elongated man interrupts his feeding, but Praetor grabs him by the neck and starts bashing his face into the stone wall at Castle. Lionheart has survived this attack, and uh, seemed to be well aware of Ralph's intervention. But instead of expressing his gratitude, however, Lionheart takes a different take, saying it's a brave man who lays down his life for another, but is Ralph braver than himself? I don't think so, and he yells, no man is going to give his life for mine. This is kind of a stubborn, prideful attitude, not common in the traditional DC-type hero. Kind of unexpected and backwards-type thinking, too, and for some reason makes me recall a hilarious scene in the old Cary Grant Ingrid Bergman movie, Indiscreet, where the two are carrying on a pleasant affair, but when Ingrid finds out Carrie's been deceitful, He's been lying the whole time about his marital status. She screams, How dare he make love to me and not be a married man? Unexpected and backwards. So Lionheart fights back while another alien, Glomph, tries to suck the spinal fluid uh, out of a prone metamorpho. Talk about unexpected. Metamorpho turned his skin into arsenic, which makes Glomph a wretch. Taz has been paired off with the other alien, Gamir, and uh, Taz gets knocked out and slung over the parasite's shoulder, a takeout snack for another time. But with Lionheart on the offensive, okay, using his sword, he cuts through Praetor's wings and 
With Glanth passing out from hunger, the aliens decide to cut their losses and find easier prey in a different city. But not before a prideful threat from Praetor that he and Lionheart shall meet again someday. And Lionheart, the only conscious hero left, at least for the moment, makes his way to the monitor room to summon help. And as he does, he goes back and forth about his feelings toward his mission and the JLI, finding it hard to discredit them after witnessing their efforts and bravery against the monsters. So he stumbles to the communications board and contacts the UN, reporting that the monsters have been driven from London by himself and those who he calls as he passes out the great heroes of the Justice League International. And that's where this chapter of Bloodlines ends. Overall, a decent chapter of the Bloodlines crossover, I think. Lionheart wasn't the most embarrassing entry in the long line of Blue Bloods, that's something. It's never really defined what, if any, his superpowers are that he gained from this alien encounter, uh, unless it's just the ability to survive spinal fluid-sucking alien attacks, and if that's the case, I can't see too many opportunities to use that power. His armor gives him a shtick, though, I guess, and uh, we'd see him a few more times, actually. He'd turn up in some issues of Justice League International, and he'd get involved in an upcoming Justice League crossover called Judgment Day. But uh, just like most of the other New Bloods, by the time DC's next big crossover rolled around, Lionheart's days were pretty much done. Alright, where does Bloodlines go from here? There's a few places you should look. As I said earlier, you should check out uh, contributions from the other members of the Bloodlines. Sorry. Bloodlines. Best event ever network. I'll be linking to them on my site, omnigun.blogspot.com. Uh, stop by there anyway to check out some images from this issue and to leave any feedback you may have for this podcast specifically or for the Bloodlines event in general. I want to hear it. Email me at imthegun at gmail.com or find me on Twitter. There I'm at Mark Sweeney Jr. You can also use the best event ever hashtag to follow along with other Bloodlines activity on Twitter as well. And I think this is as good a place as any to recognize some feedback I got on my Elongated Man episode. I got some Twitter likes and retweets from David Bowie Glamour. That's at Beetlecar. 21, who appears to have an unrivaled collection of Bowie clippings that they share on Twitter. That's great stuff. Uh, Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Network of Podcasts. I highly recommend the Secret Origins podcast. Got a like from Prolific Comics tweeter Gregor Ruggio. Fellow Bloodlines Best Event Ever Networker, Professor Alan Middleton loves Ralph and Sue as much as I do. At least as much as I do. And my tweet promoting that episode got some Twitter love from new friends, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, who have a couple of great projects going, Trekker Talk and Warlord World, celebrating the work of comics greats Ron Randall and Mike Grell, respectively. Definitely check those out at trekkertalk.com and warlordworlds.com. Got a comment on the blog from Arian from Arian's Archaic Art who thought I'd like a post he did on his blog about Superman's Secret Identity, a miniseries by Kurt Busiek and Stuart Immonen. 
Stuart Immonen is one of my favorite artists, and I did enjoy Arian's post, which you can check out at artbyarian.blogspot.com. I think that's the most uh, I've ever talked about feedback, but I want more, so keep it coming, please. All right, that will definitely do it for this episode. So in honor of bloodlines and those pesky parasites, Pridor, I'm talking to you. Keep on sucking.